Bibles or follow on the boards to my sides. Praise God, they're working. Amen. Answer prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Second, Second Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in. And shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. So ends the reading of God's word. Children ages 18 months through two years are invited to proceed to the landing toddlers. And children ages three years old through kindergarten are invited to proceed to the little landing. This morning, we're going to look at the short passage, the relatively short passage that Larry just read for us. As we've studied in our systematic theology, Sunday school classes, Scripture is the Word of God. <clears throat> it's authoritative. God uses a variety of literary, mo- literary models in the Bible, including poetry, law, apocalyptic, and history. The book of Second Kings is a book of history. It was written under God's direction to provide His story to all generations. History is made up of facts and contains records of actual events that occurred, regardless of what we presently want to do with history. It's made up of facts. Combined, First and Second Kings becomes a two-volume history book that covers around 400 years of history. And it does that in 47 chapters. Those 47 chapters are comprised of 1,507 verses. I added them up. I'm not, that's not inerrant. Don't check my math. The approximately 400 years of history recorded is succinctly abridged, and yet the record of Elisha's ministry is documented across eight chapters in that history. Eight chapters. That's a relatively, a comparatively large segment of Second Kings. I surmise this is a section of Scripture God is graciously pointing out to us. We don't know who wrote these two history books. 
We do know the books are full of facts, as I mentioned. God wanted these facts preserved for us. It seems God wanted us to have an expansive record of his work through Elisha. It seems clear God wanted us to see himself in these historical events. In Psalm 102, we're told, Let this be recorded for a generation to come. Let me back up. In Psalm 102, in my Bible, the ESV, it says, the heading of this, this chapter in Psalm is, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint. When he is faint, when he's depleted. I bet some of us here today feel depleted. I bet some of us here today can say, I've been depleted. In Psalm 102, God says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created, when it was written, that's you and me, you know, may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in, the, in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem in his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to praise and worship the Lord. Let's pray. Father, let us bask in you. Help us, Father, to be, receive your living word this morning in a way that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you. Please, Father, don't let my words, my scrambled thoughts, my notions in any way get in the way of what you have to say to my dear brothers and sisters that are here this morning or joining by live stream or recording. God, your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. If our hope has been depleted, Please restore it through the abundant outpouring of your holy grace. If our joy, our passion for you, our love for one another, our desire to share who you are with others has been depleted, please renew that, Father. We want you to be glorified in everything that happens here this morning. We want to hear your word through your spirit to the hearts and lives of each one here. Let that happen, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is all recorded for future generations of which we are part. All Scripture bears witness to God's redemptive history. First and second kings are part, as I mentioned, of His story. In these two books, many Scriptures contain great theological truths that are on display for us to see if we take a moment to look at them. We see God's omniscience. We see his omnipresence, his sovereignty, his creating and sustaining power, his great work of redemption, and we see more. All of that bears witness to the fact that God created the earth and therefore has every right to rule the earth. God's ruling of the earth unfolds, demonstrating the Lord's character, which means that mercy, justice, righteousness, and salvation work together when God fashions world events. His never-ending ability to provide for every need 
of his chosen is clear to see in this very short text. We will see, we'll, we'll see all of that in today's text in the Old Testament. We see the Old Testament foreshadowing the Messiah, our eternal Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of the beautiful integration of the Old and New Testament, Augustine notably said, The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. One more time. The new is in the old concealed. The old in the new is revealed. God has his story, and he's revealing it in Kings about our Savior, Jesus Christ. In today's text, in the middle of 400 years of recorded history about God's chosen nation, her kings, the conflicts leading to the brutal exile of his people to a foreign land, the temporal demise of his chosen nation, God inserts a seven-verse paragraph of history which conveys concise theology of God, including things pointing out to our Savior, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Jesus came to set captives free. We saw that in Psalm as we just read. We see it in Luke. We see it all over the Bible. In this text, we see God's revealing of a problem. We see God's revealing of provision. And we see God's revealing of the priority. May God grant us the ability to see the freedom God provides as we look at that series together. The problem. We see that revealed in verse 1. Let me read it. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Here we meet a godly woman in distress. The problem is made known through a plea from the widow. Although we don't know the specific details, the widow was married to a man who served the Lord by serving alongside Elisha. The nature of her husband's service is not recorded, but this widow knows she needs help. And she cries out to Elisha, the man of God. By her actions, this widow demonstrates her full awareness that she and her children need help. This woman, who's husband has died, was either left with debt or incurred debt after her death. She was left with two children. What mother, who becomes a widow, would not hold her children as close as she could to herself and protect them? What mother would not recognize the threat the bondage of slavery would be to her children? What an unimaginable threat to the intimacy a mother experiences with her children. This woman was fearing the worst. At the time this historical account occurred, it was not uncommon for the rich to rule over the poor. When this occurred, there was nothing illegal, or I'll say even socially immoral, about the creditor using slavery or servitude as a means of debt repayment through labor if the debtor was unable to pay. In Proverbs and in Leviticus, the Bible even warns us that this occurs. 
However, God told his people not to treat the poor or indebted as the rest of the world one does. As in all things, Jesus became the perfect purveyor of freedom, setting all of God's chosen free from debt, even more devastating from a debt, even more devastating. Throughout Scripture, God uses common financial or material debt to point us to the eternal spiritual debt Jesus Christ paid for us. That doesn't make this crisis for this widow any less threatening. She's depleted and she's crying out, I have a problem, I have a need, I have a debt I can't pay. She knows the tentacles of slavery are approaching her. She knows they're approaching her children and she cries out, Help, save me, fix my problem. She knows the problem's real. And she knows her financial situation will place her and her children in bondage. The problem is, she was depleted. She had no way to provide for her or her children's freedom. Given her situation and all that lay in front of her, which was threatening her and her children, we could say she was bankrupt in every manner. She cried out, provide for me. She couldn't meet her, most, her own needs. She couldn't meet her most significant need. God uses our problems, yours and mine, to show His provision and priorities. He's done that throughout history, and we see it here. When we are depleted of solutions, He has the means to fill the emptiness we have <clears throat> by pouring out exactly what we need. He fills empty vessels for His service. Empty vessels serve Him quite well. They have nothing with which to dilute his provision. Empty vessels, when filled by God, contain only the pure ingredients that he intends for those called by his name to use in service to him. The nation Israel and Gideon experienced that. <clears throat> in Judges 6.13, speaking to an angel sent by the Lord, we're told, <coughs> excuse me, and Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, small L-O-R-D, talking to the angel, Please, my Lord, if the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Gideon, like the widow, was saying, We have nothing. All this talk, all this history, all this goodness that you've done through our forefathers, it's gone. Where is it? God saying, go, I'm sending you. And God was chosen to show his power, might, and ability to save his people by providing them with all they needed to defeat the Midianites. In verse 2, still talking about the problem, Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? The man of God, Elisha. What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? 
He said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. <clears throat> Elisha asked her, what shall I do for you? And then, curiously, he seemingly begins to verbalize God's problem-solving word as he spoke back to her. The widow, though, responds with a frank and honest confession, which by extension, which by extension expresses a problem all of us have. I have nothing to offer except this little bit of something, and it's insufficient, it's irrelevant. I need you, God, to provide. What have I to offer is grossly insufficient. The truthful and humble answer provided by the widow is a beautiful model. When compared to God's overwhelming creation and wealth, He created everything. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. We have at best a mere pittance to offer. Like the widow, we have nothing to save ourselves from the slavery intent on capturing us. In her response, the widow acknowledged she had nothing except a little jar or flask of oil. The Hebrew words used indicate this was oil used for anointing, not cooking. She couldn't even cook with the oil she had. How interesting. The oil she had might be good for cosmetic purposes. The only thing she could possibly do with the oil she had would be to try to make herself look better, just like you and me. We may try to make ourselves look a little better, but we, like her, aren't able to meet our real need. We may be able to make ourselves look good for a short time. Perhaps we can fool others with a facade of confidence or self-sufficiency. But we need God to meet our deepest and most important need. Throughout Scripture, God mercifully offers His compassion and provision to us, as He does in Isaiah 55:1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Scripture also tells us elsewhere, Humble yourselves in the eyes of the Lord, and He will lift you up. The widow was depleted financially. She knew her need and humbled herself. She cried out for help. God knew the widow's need long before she cried out, expressing her need. God has a perfect purveyor of His grace and mercy. In this text, Elisha foreshadows our Savior, Jesus Christ. The role Elisha fills points all who have heard or read this historical account over the centuries to the perfect purveyor of God's grace and mercy, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect source, the one to meet our needs. Recognizing our complete insufficiency and asking God to be our everything is a beautiful position within which He will accomplish His work and His purposes. Humility brings truthfulness includes being truthful, admitting our human brokenness, the condition of our bankruptcy and our need for a Savior, demonstrates our dependency on God and acknowledges His supremacy in all things. God is omniscient. God knew the widow's need from eternity past. God knows my need. He knows your needs. The widow knew what her need was. She understood she had a problem. 
The question is, do we understand what our need is? In verses 3 through 6, we see the historical account of God's provision being laid out. The Scripture says, Then he, that's Elisha, said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought her the vessels. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. He said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. God mercifully rescues his people from slavery. God's provision demonstrates his sovereignty and omniscience. God knew the widow's need. God knows our needs. Out of his perfect love, understanding, and compassion, God is able and can provide for all our needs. And he knows our greatest need. God rescued his people in many situations in the Old Testament. He rescued the entire nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, declaring in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But that was not the ultimate rescue. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate rescue from slavery revealed fully in the New Testament. The Bible tells us in Galatians 4, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. By God's grace, slaves become his sons and daughters. The ultimate rescue was not one that God orchestrated through his prophet Elisha. No, the ultimate rescue was provided when Jesus became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, willingly dying a death of torment, paying the necessary and just penalty for the sins of all who call on his name, and then triumphantly rising from the dead, declaring victory over the slavery of death. In this section, I note that God gave directions the widow obeyed, and God provided. That pattern is not unique to this passage. You can find it all over the Bible. God gave directions to the widow. Through Elisha, God gave directions to the widow. God told the widow, go outside and borrow, not too few empty vessels, go inside with her children and shut the door and pour the oil. Notice the detail included and shut the door. Even that bit. There was no need for neighbors to witness this. this. There was no need for public display of this event. This was between God and the widow. It was personal. God knew her needs. God's going to meet her needs. He would provide what she needs. No intermediary is needed for her to receive God's great provision. Then we see obedience demonstrated. The widow obeyed God. Note that God did not simply plop the solution to the widow's depleted state in front of her. 
Perhaps today we could say God didn't choose to simply send her what she needed in a package. Amazon didn't deliver something. Neither did UPS or the Postal Service. God could have done something like that. But God chose to build her faith in Him through her trust in Him and her obedience. In verse 3, we see her wonderful response of obedience. After God told her and Elijah to go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, so on and so forth, here's what she did. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessel to her. Obedience seems so easy to talk about, but too often is so hard to live out in our lives. What if this widow, what if she had said, well, that's dumb. What if she had said, I know how much oil I have. Why would I go through the effort of bringing in empty jugs? What if she replied outwardly in her heart, is he trying to make me look like a fool? How sad and even more dangerous. How dangerous when we allow ourselves to be robbed of God-offered blessings because of our arrogance or pride. God doesn't ask us to understand. He tells us to trust. God chose to pour out his grace on this widow. That demonstrates God's compassion, love, and faithfulness. God desired that she exercise her faith in him. She chose to obediently get in the way of God's grace. She lined up the empty vessels, poured oil into them, And you know, in a way, that's exactly what we have examples of in the New Testament. Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus, the woman with the issue of the bleeding, the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit, and many others in the New Testament did the same thing. They didn't simply sit and wait. No, they pursued God's grace. I can't say this any other way than the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. (laughs) So what did he do? He climbed a tree. He knew Jesus was coming. So he climbed a tree to see Jesus. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar on the side of the road. People were telling him, Bartimaeus, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. What did he do? He cried out all the louder. Jesus, help me. I need your help. The woman with the bleeding issue. Throngs were following Jesus. What did she do? She fought the crowds to a point where she could touch Jesus and receive healing. The Syrophoenician woman, this is the boldest one of all, I think, pled her case face to face with Jesus. And they all received God's grace. Sometimes we, like these encouraging examples, need to step out of our comfort zone, out of our logic and experience-based thinking, out of our pride and self-sufficient ways, and get in the way of God's grace. Probably the greatest demonstration of getting in the way of God's grace is our response to the promise from God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Next, we see that God made provision. We see that going on in verse 6. The widow had obeyed and faith obeyed God and God was providing. In verse 6, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said, there is not another Then the oil stopped flowing. The widow and her sons ran out of vessels. 
but God provided. In God, there is no deficiency, period. We may be depleted. In God, there is no deficiency, period. Somehow, some way, a specific number of vessels were collected by the widow and her sons, and God filled them all. We can engage in wondering, would God have filled twice as many vessels if they were available? We can ask, what would the outcome have been if the widow had fewer vessels? In his sovereignty, God provided exactly what she needed to meet her needs. God took care of the details. Having said that, if we rely on ourselves, we will face deficiencies and become depleted. There are no deficiencies in God. One theologian offered this perspective that I found stimulating, thought-stimulating. He said, Our self-supplied provision may run out, but we are never impoverished in God, in His power and bounty, and the riches of His grace. All our impoverishment is in ourselves. It is our faith that fails, not His promise. He gives more than we ask. Were there more vessels? There's enough to, for, in God to fill them. Enough for all. Enough for each. He goes on to say, This pot of oil was not exhausted as long as there were vessels to be filled. In like manner, the Redeemer's all-sufficiency will only be stayed from supplying the wants of sinners and saving their souls when no more apply to Him for salvation. God will never run out. God's provision will never come up short. The widow humbly followed instructions that God provided. There's never any deficiency in the provision of Yahweh. Like the widow, we may run out of vessels, but God's provision is complete and sufficient. Remember, this is a historical account. As already pointed out, we see fact-based historical pattern demonstrated here. Directions were given. Obedience was demonstrated and provision was made. That same pattern, as I mentioned, can be seen in other historical accounts in the Bible. Without detail, think of Noah and the ark. Think of Abraham and Isaac. Think of Moses leading the Israelites out of the land of slavery, as well as the many, many times divine interventions occurred that sustained them through their 40 years of travel. We see this pattern in even less prominent accounts. Think of Hagar, convinced that she and Ishmael would die due to lack of water. God gave directions. She obeyed. God provided. Remember, too, the first miracle Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. The master of the wedding ran out of wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, humbly asked for help. Directions were given. Obedience was demonstrated. God provided. In each of these examples, God miraculously provided and met the needs of His people, all pointing to the greatest provision of all, God's salvation to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His provision is available and effective to all who are called. God's provision 
comes with a priority. In verse 7, we see that priority. The widow came. She came and told the man of God. He said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. I wonder what the widow's demeanor was at this point. I bet she was bubbling over, huh? Look what God's done. Look, look at this. I wonder how her sons responded. As she updated the prophet, all the vessels my sons collected are full. An unstated question is implied here. What should I do with what's been given to me? The man of God wisely addressed her greatest need, the biggest threat. He instructed her to pay her debts so she would be free from the devastation of slavery. The priority was to pay off the debt that she owed, which threatened her freedom. Elisha told her in so many words that God had provided her and her sons with what they needed to be free from slavery and to live. It's beautiful. Pay off the debt and live. God has provided. Powerful. There's no hint of any recommendation to turn to a life of luxury. She's to sell the oil to those who can afford to buy it, pay her debt, and live on the remainder, implying securing her future with what she needs to live. God does not supply our needs to make us wealthy, nor does He want us to be distracted by anything. He supplies our needs so that we increasingly trust in Him and live life accordingly. God supplies for our immediate greatest need, freedom from present and eternal slavery, and then lovingly provides and equips us for the work He has in store for us. We are to receive God's gifts in a manner that builds our trust in Him. God's Word carries with it answers and provisions for today, and more importantly, soul-saving provision and application for eternity. The widow's immediate need was to pay off her debt. All people have a great redemptive need to pay off a debt none of us can pay. Do you see the parallels between this recorded factual event and what Christ has done, what he's offering to provide? This miracle of providing what the widow needed but did not have demonstrates the grace that God pours out, securing a future free from slavery and meeting other immediate needs. The oil was a gift of God's grace, a gift of unmerited favor from God. God saved her from slavery. Her debt produced and provided, and He provided what she needed to live. There's no evidence God made her wealthy in her present life, but God provided and her debt is paid. Worldly fortune was not the outcome. Freedom from slavery and security offered by God was. This beautiful account of a widow in dire need, receiving a gift from God and being freed from the threat of slavery, paints a poignant picture of the eternal debt we all owe. It points to the gift we need from which God offers to provide to pay our debt. If the debt, the penalty for our sin, has not been paid, life profits us nothing. Nothing is more important than receiving God's gift. The ultimate question for each of us is not whether we have been successful in life. The ultimate question is, has the debt been paid? If the debt has not been paid, if we've not received God's free gift, just as the widow, we are no better off than before the encounter with God. 
That's a priority. Has the debt freeing us from slavery been paid? Amazing. This comes together in my mind just beautifully. The facts of this historical event are so beautifully woven together to point to Jesus and the gospel. The widow had a problem. She was depleted in all her ways. She had no reserve. The New Testament so clearly articulates the gravity of our debt. We are depleted depleted in every regard by the debt which we are unable to pay. That debt destines us to everlasting slavery. Unbelievers need to know God's Word says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. No one is righteous, no, not one. Believers must live knowing we no longer face the threat of eternal slavery, but we can be depleted. We can be depleted of joy, fellowship, awareness of His presence in our lives, assurance of present and future fulfillment, and so much more because we've chosen to fill our partially empty vessels, the jars God, God wants to fill with His oil and His presence with something other than what God pours out so freely. God had and still does have provision. God poured out oil to meet this depleted woman's greatest need. God poured out the lifeblood of His precious Son to meet the greatest needs of depleted humans enslaved to sin who will call on Him. For those who have never received that has accepted the gift of God, the free gift of God, God offers that which frees us from slavery of sin. God describes His provision in Scripture this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus did that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Jesus. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The free gift of God is eternal life. And today is the day of salvation. Without God's gift of salvation, those who do not believe are bankrupt presently and for all eternity. They are destined for enslavement by the enemy of our souls. For those who have received that gift as believers, praise God, our enslavement, our slave-producing debt has been paid and God has provided what we need to live. God has provided His written Word and His Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to provide insight to us. We don't need to trudge through life lacking joy which He provides. Just like the widow, we can follow obediently what He's told us and enjoy His presence and direction in our lives. It causes me to think of that bouncy little song, a song our youngest daughter used to sing to me as I take her to daycare in the morning. Um, the Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All we have to do is follow. So easy to say that phrase. So hard to apply it in our lives. Decades later, I'm still trying to learn that one. As the widow did, we too can humble ourselves, cry out for help, and obediently receive God's provision. It's that simple. Just as Elisha instructed, the priority is to get the debt paid off. Make absolutely certain the debt has been paid. God offered to provide payment in full for the debt. Today is the day of salvation. For those who have received the free gift of God, embrace the Holy Spirit's work in your life as you die to the desires of the flesh and come alive to the life He has called you to, transforming you into the image of God. 
get in the way of God's grace, just like Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus, and so many others have modeled for us. For those yet to accept this free gift from God, just as we saw with the widow, nullifying the slavery-producing claim against you is an urgent priority. Do not allow distractions. Accepting God's gift is an intimate, personal matter between you and God. There's no need for public fanfare. Simply ask God, ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, confessing the truth that without Him you're a sinner needing to be saved by His grace. Never, never shy away from proclaiming your decision publicly, but seeking His forgiveness and freedom is between you and Him. Let's close by reading again the scripture we started from in Psalm 102, a passage I think causes God's purpose for our text today to explode with praise to Him for His great grace. Psalm 102 that we read earlier. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked down at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed, those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a great thing You've done. Words are so inadequate right now. The problem is existence is Adam and Eve. It continues on until You come back, until You correct all wrong. Father, I thank You that You graciously, mercifully pour out in abundance what we need to be freed from the slavery that looks so intently to entrap us. Thank You that You are the answer to the problem of eternal slavery that we all face. Thank You for the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ to pay my debt, to pay those who have called on your name, all those debts for the sins that have been committed. Lord, I pray you would work in hearts here this morning, causing each one who has trusted in you to just well up with excitement and joy, recounting what it is you've done for us. Just like this widow, when she said, it happened. And I pray for those that haven't had that intimate interaction with you. I pray, God, that today might be the day where they'd close the door, look to you and say, I need to be saved. I need your provision. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this time of looking at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen.